everyone, and welcome to the UMC Lead Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Reinders, and friends, we've come to the final episode of our first season of the podcast. We're really excited that so many people joined us and that we were able to visit with our presenters from the very first lead, which was held back in 2012, and hear how they're doing and to hear their perspective on uh, the church and the world today. And we're just really thankful they took the time out uh, to join us. We're actually coming off of uh, the most recent lead conference, uh, lead 2017, which just finished up about a week ago uh, in Charlotte, and we're already looking uh, towards uh, lead 2018. Uh, we also uh, had some amazing speakers, and we're going to be uh, visiting with them in uh, future seasons. Uh, just as a preview, though, uh, season two, we're going to go back to lead 2013, and we're going to talk to all of our speakers from that season. And that's pretty exciting because uh, that was our first year. We actually had some uh, professional video uh, taken. So we'll be able to uh, do some uh, deeper dives with our speakers uh, around what they shared in uh, 2013. Um, so with that, um, thanks to everybody who listened this season, who uh, made this happen, uh, including uh, the Gentle Wolves, who uh, provided our uh, theme music, uh, and we look forward to continuing to use uh, that music, and we hope you'll support uh, their work. Um, look them up online. Um, they're currently the house band at uh, Servant Church, a United Methodist uh, faith community in Austin, Texas, um, but they do great work, and uh, we're so glad they were a part of the podcast, and we'll actually be talking to uh, their front man, uh, Richard Kintop, um, who was a speaker at 2013, and uh, they were one of our bands in 2013, and uh, we'll be catching up with them and hearing what they're up to. So with that, um, I give you uh, the end of this drawn-out introduction, and uh, we'll uh, move on to our final interview of the season with Brandon Lazarus. Thank you all, and we'll see you in season two. This is a, a pretty cool episode because you were one of our first speakers. In fact, didn't you, did you close out? I closed out the first conference. Yes, I did. So you closed it out, and now years later, you are the director of the lead conference. So you've come... You've come from the bottom. You showed up as a young lad in 2012, and now now you're running the show. How does that feel? Yeah, I was like I was like the little puppy dog following you around that first year, and 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 now you decided to take me under your wing and then set me free as a director this year <laughs> to make all your own horrible mistakes so you could learn exactly. like I had to. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And when you say little, aren't you? You're like how tall are you? Six two, six three. Six three, six three, yeah, yeah, yeah. So more like a giant Rottweiler following me around. Um, great. So, um, do you uh, remember your talk from twenty twelve? I hope you do. I do. I I I remember it. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I meant to go try to find it and read it, but then I figured what what would be the fun in that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So when when I came the first year, I was in my first year of seminary, um, and so I had seen on Facebook about the league conference. And I said, Hey, that seems like a cool thing to do. And so applied to speak to talk about what I was doing in Dallas. 
because um, I was a first-year student at Perkins School of Theology in Dallas. Um, and at the time, Dr. Elaine Heath, who's now actually the dean over at Duke Divinity, um, she was the professor of evangelism at Perkins, and she was doing this new experiment that she called the Epworth Project, and it was a connection of, of new monastic communities around the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, when I started there, I think there were maybe four houses just in the Dallas area, and they've actually grown since then um, to something like eight or nine different community houses across Dallas, and one down in Waco, and uh, one over in Fort Worth, and uh, they've even got some loose connections in um, Alaska and some connections in Western North Carolina and the Asheville area. Um, so it's really been fun to see everything that's happened since then. Uh, but my first year, I was just a, a student there at Perkins and uh, lived in the Dietrich Bonhoeffer house, which was over in East Dallas. And so we did a lot of work in and around the East Dallas community, primarily with those who um, were the working poor and the homeless. And so that's a little bit of what I had talked about in my talk that year, of just kind of the impact that had made on me and on my ministry and um, as I stayed there in Dallas, it continued to really shape my theology and shape who I am now. So who who are you now? What what did that experience kind of, what path did that set you on and how did it shape you? Yeah, she, she, she really created a monster, Ellen Heath did, uh, because she had this way of taking in people that, that thought they knew what they wanted to do um, and really helping us to, to tear everything apart and then rebuild it. Because um, when I came in, I was just, I was kind of your, your stereotypical candidate for ordained ministry. Um, came in thinking that, hey, I'll do this seminary thing, and um, maybe I'll try this this cool little project on the side of the Bonhoeffer house. But the main thing I was there for was to, to get my seminary education and come back to South Carolina and then hopefully, um, you know, get one appointment and then continue to, to get a larger appointment and then hopefully be some senior pastor of a large church. Um, but through my time there at the Bonhoeffer house, um, I started to see a different side of the church and started to see that, um, the church is more than just what we understand, um, to be the typical local church. And so my, my community there in East Dallas was a church, you know, we, we did have meals together and we shared the sacraments together and we, um, were able to be really kind of the, the hands and feet in, of Christ there in the neighborhood. Um, and I, so I had, I had heard that phrase of being the hands and feet of Christ many times, um, but to actually literally wash someone's feet who had sores one day because they came in after a rainy day and they'd been walking in their wet shoes all day, um, and I started to really understand what, what it was like for, for Christ to wash the disciples' feet. And so um, from my time there in Dallas and getting a taste of, of what it means to really, to really not, just, not just give things out to the poor, um, but to really be immersed in that, in that culture and that community um, and to be able to learn from my friends and neighbors there in East Dallas. And so, so when I came back to South Carolina, um, I was then appointed as the associate pastor at First United Methodist Church in Clover. Um, Clover is a little bit smaller than Dallas because it's about 4,000 people. Um, <laughs> Just a tad. And, and, and da- Dallas, I don't know the exact number, but I think Dallas has, has more than 4,000. Um, yeah. And so, so it, was, it was a bit of a, a culture shock for me um, to be there in that urban center and to you know, experience everything I experience on a daily basis in Dallas. 
to then be sent to this more rural setting. Um, we are out right outside of, of Charlotte, North Carolina, so it's not like we're out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, we're about, you know, 35, 40 minutes to, to downtown Charlotte. Um, but but to, to enter into that Clover community and then ask myself, okay, all that stuff that I was learning in Dallas and wanting to change the world and wanting to be a part of of this community and immersing myself in East Dallas, uh, what does that look like in Clover? And um, needless to say, it looks different. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I've, I've had to learn um, what, because the core of what I was doing in Dallas was asking the question of, you know, what does it mean to be a community? What does it mean to be a church? What does it mean to be the body of Christ? And so when I got to Clover, I had the same questions that I had to ask. Um, you know, the way that it was put when when Jesus told everyone to love your neighbor as yourself, the question of, you know, well, who is my neighbor? And so in, in Clover, my neighbor was a little bit different than East Dallas. Mm. And so it, it took some time of, of getting to know the community there in Clover and, and looking at it with new eyes. Because um, when I came in, I saw it was an old mill town. So there's there's still these old mills that have been abandoned for, for decades now. Um, and then driving around the neighborhoods and seeing that uh, there's certain neighborhoods that were predominantly African-American that are maybe 70% African-American, even though Clover is only about, you know, maybe 20% African-American. And then driving by an old school and learning that that Roosevelt school was the all-black school. And so when I learned about the Roosevelt community in Clover, I learned that Roosevelt wasn't just some neighborhood that had, you know, hard, fast lines of this is the Roosevelt community and this isn't. Um, it meant that if you were black, you're pretty much considered part of the Roosevelt community. And that community is uh, is much more impoverished than the rest of Clover. And, and that dates all the way back to when those mills were up and running. And the black people in Clover were not given the same jobs in those mills and were not given the same pay. And so it created this this system of oppression that, that continues um, not as hard fast now, um, but there's still kind of those scars of it. And um, so those are things that if I had gone to Clover prior to my experience at the Bonhoeffer House, I probably never would have been asking those questions and never seeing um, what was going on and, and kind of the underside of Clover. Mm. So is there is there a process like when when you arrive in a in a neighborhood or in a context of of getting to know uh, that that neighborhood or context? Like, how do you how do you get to know the people there? How do you get to understand their their needs and wants and their challenges? Yeah. So being part of the Methodist Connection, uh, the first thing that I actually did was I called all the United Methodist clergy that were within you know, five, 10 miles of, of Clover. And I just called them and asked them if they would be willing to go grab lunch with me. And so we sat down and, and had lunch and shared a conversation about um, what they had experienced in their time in Clover. Um, and, and one of the most helpful conversations were with um, a woman named Sharon Span Gamble, who is the pastor of the Clover Charge. Um, and that's another part of the interesting dynamics of Clover is I serve first United Methodist Church in Clover which has three clergy. We have two elders and a deacon serving there. Yet there's also the Clover Charge, which is three African-American churches that are on one charge with one pastor. So while Clover has three clergy to one church that's white, we have one pastor to three churches that are black. 
Um, now, when you look, actually look at attendance, those three churches combined are, are still a little less than half of what our church is, um, but it does speak to that dynamics. And mm-hmm. um, so that was, that was one of the main things that I noticed was, was kind of that division and kind of the differences between what we were experiencing at First Clover and what they were experiencing in their charge. And then the rest of it just came from, you know, walking around the neighborhood um, taking my dog out for a walk, talking to people that I came in contact with, um, setting up a couple meetings with different people on the town council and the town manager. Um, when it's a small town like Clover, it's really easy to to set up a meeting with people like that. Um, and so I, I spent most of my time just, just listening to what was going on and kind of observing and kind of seeing the the underside that maybe people weren't actually explicitly talking about. But to me, kind of as an outsider and from my experience at the Bonhoeffer House, um, that I was kind of noticing these similarities between um, Clover and some of the, the realities of, of the East Dallas area, too. Nice. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting because it being, uh, I guess, for elders, being itinerant, and you, you're not choosing exactly where you go each time, um, you have to you have to get to know your community, whether it's, I guess, um, they're quote unquote, your people, people that have, you have natural af- affinity with, like, um, I think you mentioned that was a little hard, but, um, how, like, how hard is it? And like, what advice do you give to anybody coming into a, a new situation? Yeah. I mean, it, like I said, it, it was a tough, it was a big culture shock to go from, um, Dallas and the Bonhoeffer House and um, the church next door to the Bonhoeffer House, Grace United Methodist, um, it's a small church that has maybe 100, 150 average attendants. But out of that church, they have a medical clinic, they have a legal clinic, they have a preschool program that's for kids who have English as a second language. Um, they, they help us with the Bonhoeffer House, and then they're also a reconciling church and in their old parsonage at the time, um, there was the Refugee Services of North Texas. And then when they moved out, they had Allie's House, which was working with teens who are pregnant and teen mothers. And, you know, that's, that's, just, that's just the stuff that you, that you see day to day, not to mention what each and every member of that church um, was doing in the mission in their community. And so then to go from that church to then First Clover, which which has a, a food project where once a month they give out food and, and they're, they're wonderful people and they, they do some great missions. Um, but it was, it was a little bit different context than what I was doing in Dallas. And so the main thing I had to do was, was to stop comparing the two churches and realize mm-hmm. that they each had, they each had their own calling. They each had their own experiences um, and they each had different ideas of, of where they were headed. And so uh, one of the greatest pieces of advice that I've given from been given from older pastors is to just simply love the people, um, and it's it's a commandment that not just comes from that doesn't just come from those pastors who I know, but comes from Jesus Himself, who <laughs> said, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so I just had to get to Clover and figure out how do I love this, these people. Um, it's a it's a question that's really simple, but it's a whole lot harder in practice. Um, and so I had to learn to to stop, to slow down, um, to hear hear from these people, hear about their lives, hear about their experiences, and then see how 
how I could plug into what was already going on in Clover without without feeling like I was trying to control it or push it in a certain direction, yet at the same time being true to, to who I am and not completely hiding that or feeling ashamed of, of my own experiences in life. Hmm. So would you say then that like being being missional, quote unquote, um, uh, isn't isn't limited to to going and living in in East Dallas um, and uh, in that context, but being missional is is you know listening and learning and being embedded in whatever context you're in. Yeah, and I mean one of the things you know every, everybody loves to get political, right? But so let's get political for a second. You know what we've noticed with the election and with all these people that voted for Trump that, that no one was expecting, um, there were these voices that were mostly in rural settings that were mostly white, and there were people that felt like they had been abandoned. Um, now, we can get into deeper conversations about whether they have, and, and you can get into an argument about um, what they've experienced as opposed to uh, what many African Americans and Latinos have experienced in, in this nation. Um, but at the end of the day, what it what it told us was there were people that were shouting out, you know, you're not listening to me, mm-hmm. um, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna respond by using my right to vote, and that's my voice. And so many of those people that voted for Trump are are members of my congregation. And after that election, I had to stop and say, well, you know, I I've in my mind villainized everybody who's voted for Trump, yet I love these people in my congregation, and many of them voted for Trump, and many of them are saying you know, you haven't been listening to me. And so I had to, to stop and figure out, okay, have, have I been listening? And have I been listening well? And what are ways that we can, can find agreement and move on? And I think that if, if we're learning anything, um, it's that we've got to listen to each other. It's the same thing that the, the Black Lives Matter movement is saying of, of you know, we, we haven't been listened to. And so we're, we're acting out the way that, that we we understand and we're acting out in ways that that we feel are right in order to be heard. And so we, we've got to figure out ways to be heard and we've got to figure out ways to listen. So how do we do that in the church? So you brought it up. Don't blame me. Yeah. Later. You brought it up. So. <laughs> yeah. It, it, the, the hard part is, is that it's, it's so based on your particular context. Um, and, you know, that's, that's one of the things that we, we really talk about with, with the lead conference and with UMC lead is that um, it's all contextual and we, we can't come out and say, you know, here's, here's ABC and XYZ and this is how you're going to grow your church. And this is how you're going to bring about racial reconciliation. And so um, the, the context is very different. And so in my church, um, I'm not going to get out half of my congregation to go to a black lives matter protest. Uh, it's just simply not going to happen. Um, Though when I say the words Black Lives Matter from the pulpit, it's, it's going to shut a lot of people down. Um, and so I've had to learn that. And so the way that it happens is have individual conversations with people. And that's, that's a lot of work and it takes a lot of time. Um, and I know that there's some people that are saying, hey, that's, that's not good enough for me. And I, and I hear them and I, and I understand that. And I have to, have to say that at the end of the day, like, I don't have all the answers. But I'm I'm gonna try, and I want you to come alongside me and call me out when I do something wrong, and call me out when I say something wrong. Um, but when it comes to my individual members, um, I've just got to have the conversations with them. And if if I hear some them say something that just doesn't match up with what I believe or what my experiences are, 
um, I have to I have to push back with questions. Um, oftentimes, people the way that they push back is to try to make an argument, um, but making arguments isn't what's what's going to bring about change. It's it's telling the stories um, that I've heard from my friends in Dallas and now from living in the Charlotte area um, of of being able to hear what's going on in this community and then just to share my experiences and um, together we can find those those common grounds in our experiences um, and we can challenge one another. So I, uh, there is a lot of talk among our colleagues of um, really this isn't about dialogue or trying to understand people or whatever, but, but we're entering this, the, you know, we weren't, we weren't loud enough and we're entering this time yeah. where we have to be louder. Um, and that, um, we have to turn up the volume on, on the prophetic voice. We have to, um, be in the streets and, um, uh, dissent and defy, uh, as much as possible. Um, how does that how does that fit into you know I think it's easy for uh, middle class male Caucasian pastors to say hey let's let's just we just need to talk to our we need to be nicer to our people we yeah. disagree with um, and yeah. other folks are saying that's not what Jesus did he flipped over the tables um, and he threw his fist in there and um, he drew the line in the sand um, and and we need to do that and we need to do more of that. Yeah, I think we need to do that too. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to be someone to say that your response is wrong, um, and and I think that that's where the most damage is done um, is when we try is when people try to say you know these people shouldn't be out protesting they instead need to be doing X Y and Z. Um, when Keith Lamont Scott was was killed here in the Charlotte area, um, <laughs> I actually had my wisdom teeth taken out that day. Um, so it wouldn't have been a good thing for me to go and participate in the protest, but I was able to uh, participate in some of the movements later on. Um, and just recently they came out that they're, they're not going to be charging the officer. Um, that just came out a couple of days ago. And um, yeah, and so there's pain. And so there's people taken to the streets. And um, sometimes those people that go out to the streets are also um, going to end up doing some damage to property. Um, but that's just that's just some of the people that are doing that, and that's some of the response. And um, although I would never advocate violence, um, I think that it's something that that clearly shows that that we've got to do a better job of making sure that everybody feels included in the system, because um, there's a lot of people that feel disenfranchised. And so I think that we absolutely need the prophetic voice. I think I think protests are important. It says that we're we're not okay with the status quo, and we we need things to change, um, and so I think that you you need a both and because um, there's going to be certain people that are either not going to respond to protests or may even respond negatively, and so we're going to need people on the ground in all places, and so we're going to need some people on the ground in town down Charlotte that are speaking out, that are protesting, that are getting arrested, and you know sometimes I'm able to be one of those people. Uh, but then we also need people that are going to be in a place like Clover uh, where they don't understand the protest or why people are protesting or why protests turn violent towards property or towards people. And so we're also going to need people that can can translate that into a way that other people can understand. Um, and so being here in Clover, but also on the edge of Charlotte, I've had the great opportunity to be both of those people at times. Um, and I think we're going to need everybody. Uh, if 
if we're going to create change, everybody has to be involved and everybody has to have skin in the game and everybody has to ask the question of what is it that I can do? How is it that I can most fully love my neighbor? Great. Um, last question. What are you most excited about now, uh, right now that you're working on and don't say lead? I guess you could say, <laughs> I guess you could say lead because I know you, I, I only say that because I know you're excited about that, but what, what in your ministry, what in your life right now are you, are you working on that you're excited about? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, honestly, lead is one of the things that I'm excited about because it brings these amazing creative people together to share ideas. Um, but in my local context, one of the things that I'm actually most excited about is um, something that I, I, I did at my previous um, internship down in Columbia, South Carolina, um, and it's something that I took from my experience in Dallas, uh, which is to start a class meeting, which <laughs> saying starting a class meeting doesn't sound like <laughs> something that's extremely exciting and something that's interesting. Um, but, you know, the class meeting was, was what really started the Methodist movement. And um, for those who are listening and don't know about the class meeting, it was it was the beginning stages of the Methodist movement, which was gathering people together around the central question of how is it with your soul? Um, and so small group of people coming together to watch over one another in love is another phrase that's used with these class meetings. And so we, the way that we started it was we, we went through Kevin Watson's book called The Class Meeting. Um, which takes you chapter by chapter of talking about the history of the class meeting and and how it functions and kind of little um, little things that could wreck it and certain things that could make it better. Um, and so I went through that book with about six members of my church, and at the end of those six chapters, we then functioned as a class meeting. Um, and so to be able to sit around each week and ask each other, you know, how is it with your soul? Um, what's what's helped you grow closer to God, what has separated you from God, and to really walk along each other with each other in these in these questions. And um, that's really what has excited me most to see how this class meeting has affected them so deeply um, and and the possibility of taking that class meeting to other places as well um, and to to really have that sense of accountability towards one another. In, in our own walks as of faith and walking closer to um, what we understand to be be perfection and to be perfected in love. And so the best way we can do that is to love one another and find ways to, to push one another. Well, that's, that is very exciting, especially um, <clears throat> for Methodists um, that you're, yeah. <clears throat> you're really leaning into it. Um, so we thank you. Um, <laughs> Well, uh, I will uh, let you go, but thank you for uh, joining me in the conversation. 